0: I really like Docketwise. It makes immigration applications easy by allowing the clients to provide information through simple online questionnaires that are shareable by text or email and available in multiple languages. Not only that, Docketwise provides a comprehensive group of case management features, including invoicing and calendaring, secure messaging, task management, and a lot more. You can learn all about Docketwise and receive a 10% discount on your subscription by heading to docketwise.com immigration review so they know we sent you and as always this show does not constitute legal advice and has no bias other than to keep you up to date and to enable you my dear colleagues to excel in court so without further ado let's start the review Some strange cases this week. Really, it kind of seems that this week, the circuits are more focused on the attorneys than they are on the non-citizens. Plus, the Ninth Circuit hasn't published in like a month, which has me terrified for the weeks to come. In immigration news, Principal Legal Advisor Carrie Doyle issued her long-awaited prosecutorial discretion memo this week, and it's only 17 pages long, single-spaced. It's a great read, and already seems to be having an effect. Even if it's not technically in effect. Thank you, Principal Legal Advisor Doyle and Secretary Mayorkas. Here are our four, kind of strange, cases for the week. Starting off, we have Box Sabin v. Garland, published by the Fifth Circuit on April 8th, 2022. Didn't think we'd have any wins for non citizens this week until the Fifth Circuit came in clutch Friday evening. This case is about motions to reopen, equitable tolling, and BIA appeals. Mr. Bok appears to have entered the U.S. unlawfully in 2005 and was ordered removed in absentia when he did not appear for his initial hearing. He remained in the U.S. and in 2013 married a U.S. citizen. USCIS approved an I-130 petition for Ms. Bok benefit in 2016, thereby potentially making him eligible for relief or, at a minimum, consular processing with a waiver. Provided his in absentia removal order was reopened. So, Mr. Boxhaven filed a motion to reopen in 2017. An immigration judge denied the motion. Rather than appeal, Mr. Boxhaven filed a second motion to reopen two months later, expressly unopposed by DHS. But the IJ denied that motion too, finding it time barred and number barred, even though DHS didn't oppose the motion. Important reminder there. Had DHS joined the motion rather than simply not opposed it, the regulatory number and time bars to motions to reopen probably wouldn't have applied. But because DHS simply did not oppose it, the regulatory bars did apply, absent an exception or sui sponte reopening. Anyway, Mr. Bok then decided to appeal the first denial of the motion to reopen concurrently with a motion for the BIA to accept his untimely appeal. And this was all through new counsel. The reason that Mr. Boxsaban needed to file a motion for the BIA to accept his untimely appeal is because notices of appeal must be filed with the BIA within 30 days of an immigration judge's final order on a case. Mr. Boxsaban argued that the 30 days should be equitably told in this case, quote, due to the ineffective assistance of his prior counsel who had deficiently advised him to file a second motion to reopen rather than appeal the IJ's March 2017 order, end quote, denying that first motion. Mr. Boxhaven made other arguments as well. The BIA rejected them all. So Mr. Boxhaven sought the assistance of the Fifth Circuit. And good thing he did. See, the BIA decided to construe Mr. Boxhaven's motion as a request for the BIA to self certify his untimely appeal to itself, rather than to equitably toll the filing deadline. And that's because in the 2016 decision matter of Leodov. The BIA held that it has no authority to extend the time for the filing of a notice of appeal. But, quote, whatever the merits of Leadav were at the time it was issued, the Supreme Court has since made quite clear, end quote, at least through decisions in other contexts, that, quote, the 30-day BIA appeal filing rule is non-jurisdictional and subject to equitable tolling, end quote. Huge ruling. The Fifth Circuit is not going to follow Matter of Leo Dove. And that ruling aligns with decisions out of at least the Second and Ninth Circuits as well. Simply put, quote, the BIA has the jurisdiction to hear the case if Mr. Buck Sabin establishes equitable tolling. End quote. Whether he does, of course, is a whole other question that will likely depend on whether he can establish his ineffective assistance of counsel claim with that first motion to reopen and what happened thereafter. But the BIA must conduct that equitable tolling analysis. Case remanded. And that is Boxhaven v. Garland. <music> Next is Zaraguin v. Garland, published by the Eighth Circuit on April 4, 2022. This case is about asylum. Ms. Araguin is from Mexico and applied for admission at a port of entry in 2016 with her two minor children, requesting that the United States give her and her children asylum. As a basis, she claimed a membership in the particular social group of, quote, immediate family members of her husband, Arsenio Henjoza Mendoza, end quote, a former police officer who had been a commander in a local auto defense group formed to fight organized crime and drug cartels in their hometown, the city of Apazingan, Mexico. In September 2014, a rival protection group that eventually itself turned to organized crime, Los Viagras, threatened to murder Arsenio and his family if they stayed in town. They texted threats and drove around town with megaphones, calling Arsenio and his family animals who would soon be killed. Arsenio disappeared in July of 2015 with another Defense Force member. They've never been found. The Mexican military investigated it a bit but didn't find anything and the Mexican police seemed to be, at best, unconcerned. In June 2016, Miss Aragüin received a threatening call from another organized crime group called the Chanda, saying that in fact they were behind Arsenio's disappearance and Miss Aragüin and her family would be next. And it was not an idle threat. The wife of the other commander had herself been targeted as well. So Miss Aragüin and her children fled. It appears that there was a follow-up thread over Facebook and that friends and family in town were questioned about Miss Araguin's whereabouts, but her other family, her parents and siblings, have lived in the town unharmed, as have Arsenio's father and sister. The immigration judge found Miss Araguin credible but determined that she hadn't suffered past persecution, and that any harm that she feared was not on account of a protected ground under the INA. The IJ also denied humanitarian asylum, which doesn't necessarily require a showing of a well-founded fear in the future, but still requires that an applicant suffered terrible harm in the past, generally on account of a protected ground. The BIA affirmed, and the 8th Circuit upheld the agency. It agreed that Ms. Aragun was never physically harmed, undermining a past persecution finding. It also agreed that there was insufficient evidence showing how or why Arsenio had disappeared, including what group, if any, was responsible. Plus, Ms. Araguin and her children lived in the town for a year after his disappearance. On the whole, the 8th Circuit believed that this didn't rise to the level of past persecution. The 8th Circuit rejected Ms. Araguin's argument that the IJ hadn't given her an opportunity to explain why she didn't have the additional evidence that the IJ desired. Instead, the 8th Circuit held that she was, quote, afforded that opportunity when counsel for DHS asked her to explain why she did not provide certain evidence. Her reply, that she did not think about it, was not a satisfactory explanation, end quote. The 8th Circuit also held that the IGNBA did not err by believing that the safety of Arsenio's father and sister undermined the claim. And that's mainly because Miss Aragüin defined her particular social group as, quote, immediate family, end quote, of Arsenio. And that term is, quote, generally understood as a broader group than a person's nuclear family, end quote. So immediate family, I guess, according to the Eighth Circuit, would include the father and sister who are living safely in town. Remember that one, guys, the difference between immediate family and nuclear families. The 8th Circuit further held that Ms. Ereguin's failure to establish past persecution was pretty much dispositive of her humanitarian asylum claim, and that the failure on asylum here precluded a withholding grant, which generally has a higher burden of proof. Nor, according to the 8th Circuit, did the record support a Convention Against Torture grant. Finally, the 8th Circuit affirmed the BIA's denial of Ms. Ereguin's motion to reopen and or remand. And that's because the new evidence Ms. Ereguin sought to submit wouldn't have affected at least one of the reasons that the IJ and BIA relied upon to deny. Ms. Araguin's failure to establish that any fear of persecution that she had was on account of her membership in a cognizable particular social group or other protected ground. Ms. Araguin, therefore, did not succeed. But there's a glimmer of hope for other asylum seekers, if a bit faint. <music> Listen up, paid circuit practitioners. In a footnote, the court refused to consider Miss Aragwin's argument that based on the statutory text, the quote Nexus standard for withholding of removal claims is less rigorous than the asylum standard, end quote. And that's because Miss Aragwin didn't bring it up before the BIA. Now to be fair to Miss Aragwin, the BIA would have summarily rejected the argument based on its rejection of that exact argument in matter of CTL. And perhaps Eighth Circuit that waives the exhaustion requirement? Either way, it looks like that this very enjoyable issue remains wide open in the Eighth Circuit. And if the Eighth Circuit were eventually to disagree with matter of CTL, it would align with a recent Ninth Circuit decision and at least one and maybe two other courts that have similarly ruled. And that is Araguin v. Garland. Next is Camacho Valdez v. Garland, published by the Seventh Circuit on April 6, 2022. This case is not actually about Mr. Camacho Valdez. It's about his attorney, who I will not name. But the Seventh Circuit certainly does. Mr. Camacho Valdez's attorney filed a petition for review and emergency stay motion for Mr. Camacho Valdez, requesting that the Seventh Circuit order that DHS not remove Mr. Camacho Valdez during the pendency of his petition for review. But the attorney didn't pay the filing fee to docket the case. Then, the 7th Circuit ordered supplemental briefing because the stay request lacks substantive argument, particularly on whether the petition is likely to eventually succeed on the merits, which is one of the most important stay factors. But the attorney didn't file anything. The 7th Circuit reminded him, and the attorney still filed nothing. I'll let the 7th Circuit take it from here. Quote, after three more weeks of radio silence, more than 11 weeks after we ordered the supplement, we denied the stay motion and ordered the attorney to show cause why he should not be disciplined for failing to comply with two court orders. He responded a day late and explained that he had missed our earlier orders because the notifications on his smartphone were not working. That excuse is unacceptable. End quote. Nor did the attorney ever pay the original docketing fee required or file a motion seeking permission for his client to proceed in form of paupers. Latin for, My dudes, my client cannot pay this fee. The attorney failed to file anything, even after the Seventh Circuit extended his deadlines more than once, on the attorney's own requests. When the attorney finally submitted an in form of motion, the attorney did not include an affidavit from the client as it appears the Seventh Circuit requires and it was a, quote, boilerplate motion, end quote. American for, not very detailed, and almost sure to fail. For those reasons, the Seventh Circuit dismissed Mr. Camacho Valdez's petition for review. So the non-citizen's case is done without a decision on the merits from the Seventh Circuit. The Seventh Circuit then turned towards his attorney. It sanctioned him $1,000 for repeatedly failing to heed the court's instructions, quote, without a valid excuse, end quote. And while the Seventh Circuit did read the attorney's excuse, it also believes that, quote, no reasonable lawyer relies on smartphone notifications to monitor email communications or as a substitute for regularly checking the court docket, end quote. Particularly where, as here, his client was detained and facing imminent removal. And Mr. Camacho Valdez was indeed eventually removed to Guatemala. The Seventh Circuit believes sanctions, quote, a necessary response to the attorney's abandonment of his client and also as a deterrent, end quote. Plus, it wasn't the first time. The Seventh Circuit brought receipts, quote, in the past seven years, we have issued 24 show cause orders against this attorney in a dozen cases, yet he has never faced consequences. In light of this history, we ordered the attorney to show cause within 21 days why he should not be suspended or removed from this court's bar, end quote the attorney appears in big trouble, as the Seventh Circuit believes, quote, more serious consequences are now clearly necessary to address the attorney's pattern of neglecting his professional responsibilities, especially considering the particular vulnerability of the clients he routinely represents, end quote. So pretty much the worst decision an attorney can receive. And it brings to mind the Seventh Circuit's similar frustration with BIA members when, two years ago in Baez Sanchez v. Barr, the court said, quote, we have never before encountered defiance of a remand order, and we hope never to see it again. Members of the board must count themselves lucky that Baez Sanchez has not asked us to hold them in contempt with all the consequences that possibly entails, End quote. The Seventh Circuit, it would appear, expects to be obeyed, no matter who you are. As well they should. And that is Camacho Valdez v. Garland. Finally, we have Hernandez-Serrano v. Garland, published by the Sixth Circuit on April 7th, 2022. Again, the circuits are just not overly pleased with attorneys this week. And to be clear, I know many of the attorneys on this case, and they are some of the best of the best. This is the big Sixth Circuit case about administrative closure from episode 31. In short, the previous panel decision in this case had held that it was okay for Attorney General Sessions to hold, in matter of Castro-Tum, that immigration judges in the BIA lack authority to administratively close cases. But of course, in matter of Cruz-Valdez, Attorney General Garland vacated Castro-Tum, meaning that administrative closure is back everywhere. Except maybe the Sixth Circuit because of the first Hernandez-Serrano decision? I'm a bit unclear and quite frankly I think the Department of Justice might be uncertain as well. Well, unsurprisingly then, counsel for Mr. Hernandez Serrano was thinking about asking the Sixth Circuit to go and bunk on the issue. And perhaps recognizing the importance of the whole dispute, the Sixth Circuit apparently granted Mr. Hernandez Serrano 14 extensions of time to move the court to go and bunk, equating to an extra 510 days, according to the court. But Mr. Hernandez-Serrano never moved the court to go and banc, meaning that he never asked the full Sixth Circuit to reconsider the panel decision. Instead, he and Oil appear to have reached an agreement with the assistance of a Sixth Circuit mediator that resulted in Mr. Hernandez-Serrano getting his case reopened and dismissed by the BIA, thereby making his Sixth Circuit petition for review moot. With their client's case resolved, Mr. Hernandez-Serrano's attorneys then moved the Sixth Circuit to vacate their published decision in this case, and thereby demurkify the administrative closure issued nationwide. But the Sixth Circuit was not inclined to do so. Quote, Vacature is an extraordinary remedy for which Mr. Hernandez-Serrano bears the burden of showing entitlement. End quote. According to the Sixth Circuit, Vacature is reserved for, quote, a party who seeks review of the merits of an adverse ruling, but is frustrated by the vagaries of circumstance, end quote. Not the case here, said the court. It believed nothing vague or unfair about this case. Mr. Hernandez Serrano got a bunch of extensions, but never filed for rehearing or vacature. Now, Mr. Hernandez-Serrano argued that he did meet the standard because he was ultimately frustrated in his efforts to petition the court by the fact that the BIA ultimately reopened and dismissed his case, thereby making the petition for review moot. But, said the Sixth Circuit, Mr. Hernandez-Serrano, quote, was hardly a disinterested observer in the proceedings leading to the relief granted to him by the BIA, end quote. Rather, the Sixth Circuit appears to believe, probably correctly, that Mr. Hernandez-Serrano didn't file any motion with the Sixth Circuit for all of those months because he was negotiating and mediating with the Department of Justice to get the BIA to take favorable action in this case. And to the Sixth Circuit, that was neither extraordinary or unfair. The Sixth Circuit seems to recognize that the first panel decision in this case makes the administrative closure landscape murky, but it's not overly concerned. Quote, If the Supreme Court eventually wants to review the question presented here, it can. In the meantime, our opinions will add to the debate among the courts of appeals that help to illuminate the questions that come before the Supreme Court for review." All right. Hernandez Serrano v. Garland remains a precedential decision. But while we're talking about it, I'd be remiss not to again mention that Judge Clay dissented from the original panel decision and cited to and quoted KKTP associate Liz Montano's publication in the Yale Law Journal Forum on the issue. And that is Hernandez Serrano v. Garland. So there you have it. You're all caught up with the past week's published immigration cases. I'm Kevin A. Gregg, a partner with the law firm Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli & Pratt, and this has been another episode of Immigration Review. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with a friend and rate and review us. Each review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, subscribe to Immigration Review wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what we do and want to become a patron of the show, please check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash immigration review or click on the link in the show notes. And if you're interested in an official immigration review CLE certificate for five credit hours, email me at kgregg at kktplaw.com with your full name and the episode numbers for the 10 shows you've listened to. Also, feel free to email me with questions, comments, or anything at all, and follow the show on Instagram and Facebook, at Immigration Review, and send us a tweet, at ImReview, that's I-M-M, Review. I'll be back next Monday for a brand new discussion. Until then, I'm Kevin A. Gregg, bringing you the Immigration Review.